This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Suffering. Suffering, according to Webster's Dictionary, is the state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Pastor and author Tim Keller says that suffering dispels the illusion that we have the strength and competence to rule our own lives. Now, oftentimes, this is more painful than the actual suffering is realizing that this is true. Bob Marley said, the truth is everybody's going to hurt you. You just got to find the ones worth suffering for. And this is Peter's point today, that we will suffer for stuff. We'll suffer for a number of things But will we suffer for things that truly matter? You know, Jesus warned his disciples that they would be rejected and persecuted because he was rejected and persecuted. So we must stop telling people that that Christians who are hoping in Christ and following Jesus will have a trouble-free life. Jesus never promised that. Never. We need to stop saying it. However, Jesus did promise that he would be with us in and through our suffering and also that he overcame and we, through him, will overcome. He said in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will not have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation and suffering, distress, ridicule, marginalization, and persecution. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Peter starts with a beautiful word in verse 12. Beloved. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, at the excruciating, the agonizing trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is normal, Peter is saying. Suffering isn't strange. He says, don't be surprised. Rather, let your response not be that of astonishment, but let it be of rejoicing. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings and his own distress, that you may rejoice and be glad, overjoyed, when his glory is revealed. Beloved, beloved. And he's speaking of suffering. Because typically when we experience suffering, we don't feel loved or cared for, especially by a God who is supposed to control everything. Beloved, identity, my loved ones, chosen, adopted, adored, cherished, those prized and supremely valued by God. That's who I'm talking to. I love to see how Peter shepherds and pastors these early Christians through their sufferings as he begins with enforcing God's love for them and his concern for them. Here is where their hope has to stay as they face suffering. Regardless of what suffering may tell our spirits and our minds, we must hear this voice all the more loudly. God loves you. He likes you. God is thrilled with you, and he is with you. Suffering seems to silence that down to a whisper. 
But he's telling us here at the very front end of his statement on suffering, and he builds on this all throughout his letter now. This is a big theme all the way through. God loves you. He loves you. You see the painful moments in life, however those difficulties might come at us. Those difficulties are the ones in which we're most likely to question God and go our own way. It's as if the enemy, Satan, he says to us, God doesn't care about the pain you're going through. God isn't able to do anything about it anyway. The distress, the misery, the pain, the adversity, it's never going to stop. God has turned a blind eye to you. He doesn't care at all. He's apathetic and he's absent. This is the voice of the enemy when life hurts, when suffering is upon us. This is what the flesh of who we are, the sin of who we are, gravitates towards. This is where we drift in suffering without an intentional effort to pursue the mighty God that we serve. And he's getting us there. We will drift towards this being our response. Where are you? Why don't you care? On the cross, Jesus said something similar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the absence of God so that you would never have to. Never. Because of Christ, Christian, unbeliever, I pray this is true as you trust him more. But Christian, because of what Christ has done for us, theologically, we never have ground to stand on to say, God, why are you absent? Jesus did that for us so that he would always be near us. Now, suffering blinds us to that. Suffering makes it really hard to see him, but Peter guides us this morning into how to rest in suffering. He says later in 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It's not an apathetic hand. It's not a powerless hand. He's not limp-wristed here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Exalt you could be seen as antithetical to that of going through suffering and being pressed down. Your present suffering will just be for a little while, even if it's for the rest of your life here on earth. It's still just a little while, Christian. And soon, God will lift. He will exalt you out of the, the, these difficult circumstances and into his safe and satisfying presence forever, far from anything that you ever feared or suffered in this life. He will heal every wound. He will make up for every loss. He will wipe away every tear. When he appears, this is his first, thi- his first activity for us, is wiping away our tears. So instead of responding to our suffering with a proud indignation and frustration, we can shock the world with patient and even joyful humility before God. We follow Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2. The one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, Philippians 2, 8. Jesus suffered everything knowing the happiness of being held by heaven and for heaven. So what does humility look like in the midst of hardship and heartbreak and trial and suffering? 1 Peter 5, 6-7, humble yourselves. 
casting all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the opposite of what the enemy tells us. <laughs> Complete opposite. Instead of defiantly hurling your affliction back at God, humility hands every anxiety back to him with affection and confidence. Humility refuses to treat God as an incompetent father or an unsympathetic boss, but comes to him, even in suffering, as a compassionate and invested father. Humility in our suffering believes, as John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things, and you may be aware of three of them. It's having the humility and trust to accept this as true, that you might not know it all. And by the way, it's called trust because you don't know it all. Suffering doesn't have to make sense in order for you to be obedient and humble through it. God doesn't owe it to you to explain the 10,000 things that he's doing because then it would no longer be trust. It would be more that of reason. And he's asking for faith in him, trust in him. Suffering is the pattern for Christians, and it should be expected. It shouldn't be a surprising exception. It should be expected. You know why? Because we're told 2,000 years ago in a letter from Peter to expect it. We're told 2,000 years ago by Jesus to expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. Peter's telling us to suffer well and rejoice in our suffering as disciples of Jesus Christ, as Christians. Look at verse 14. Now, if you're insulted, if you're mocked, if you're ridiculed, if you're falsely accused, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That means happy. You are fortunate. You are privileged. The word privilege is here. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are privileged. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that word rest literally means comfort and revives the spirit. You aren't who they say you are. As you're being insulted for your faith in Christ, you're not those insults. You are blessed. You are privileged. You are beloved. That's who you are. Peter comforts us in this way. As you suffer for Jesus' sake, know that in such times, the spirit of glory, literally the Holy Spirit, is resting upon you in a special and powerful and unique way. The spirit is not unaware of suffering. Jesus suffered. He understands suffering. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Don't be insulted and suffer for reasons such as hate and violence. It's not suffering when you're living with the consequences of having no integrity and no character. That's not the suffering that Peter's talking about. Suffering for a DUI is justice. That's not suffering for Jesus and his name's sake. That's a consequence to foolishness, stupidity, and the flesh. Suffering for being a meddler, you know, like, a, like a, a, a chirper, like someone who's just always in someone else's business. Suffering for a meddler and losing friends, that's not suffering for Christ. That's suffering the consequences of your sin. 
But even in this, Christ still comforts us, even in our own beds that we make of foolishness. But the point is, Peter's saying, don't, don't live in such a way that you have to suffer for those things. Suffer for the name of Christ. Don't suffer because of your foolishness and your sin. In context and going back a tad, he's saying suffer for doing good and suffer for looking like God. Godliness and holiness. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, now that doesn't surprise us. He used the word Christian. It doesn't surprise us in our culture. Two Christ followers are. But this was a derogatory word, rarely if ever spoken by a true Christ follower to another Christ follower. This was crazy. This was a dirty word used against those who follow Jesus. So he was getting their attention. If you suffer for being insulted, if you suffer for being a Christian, if you are insulted and you suffer for living as a Christian, they'd be like, whoa. He understands what we're going through in our ridicule. They must be calling Peter and the other Christ followers the same thing they're calling us up here in Asia Minor. He's aware of our suffering as he shepherds us here. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. You wear that insult well. If anyone suffers as a Christian for living like Jesus, for being a follower of Jesus, let him not be ashamed, but let him rather glorify God, make him look good, praise God, honor God in that name. Do not be ashamed. Do not be embarrassed. Do not feel guilt. Do not feel disgraced. Do not feel remorse or regret for being considered a Christian. It's a crown of honor. Wear it. If you suffer ridicule and hatred and persecution for being a Christian, and don't go looking for this, try to live at peace among all men. But if this suffering comes at you, do not be ashamed and do not crumble. Rather, glorify and make much of God through your suffering. In September of 1555, in Oxford, England, Bishop Hugh Latimer turned to Bishop Nicholas Ridley as they, they're being burned at the stake for being Christians. He says, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For today, by God's grace, we will light a candle in England that will never be put out. That makes God look good. Earlier in that same year, 1555, at 4 a.m. on January 31st, Pastor John Bradford turned to John Leaf as both were tied to the same stake and being burned alive. He looks at John Leaf and says, be of good cheer, Master Leaf. We will have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. As the flames rose up, they praised God with their last breath so that everyone could hear just how good God is. We'll likely not suffer the same fate, though we may. Regardless, may we suffer well and glorify God like this, whatever might happen. A sad indictment to our Christian subculture is that if you remove a comfort, we crumble 
If you take success or money or even health, we run so fast, it seems, in our faith in Christ, let alone be burned alive at a stake. My prayer is that we would live confidently as Christians and make God look good. Make, make him look like he's alive. Make him look like he's strong. Make him look like he does comfort those. Make him look like he is near the brokenhearted. Give the outsiders, the unbelievers, a desire to press in to learn more because of how unshakable and strong and courageous we live in the midst of suffering. That's attractive. That's appealing. You see, God uses this suffering to purify and cleanse and, and focus the church and the Christians. Therefore, the church should unreservedly and, and wholeheartedly give themselves to God in their sufferings. But in order to do this, in order to rejoice in the fire of suffering, we must understand the nature of the fire, I believe. You see, the nature of the fire that Peter's referring to is a purifying fire. It's a proving fire. It's a cleansing fire. It's a fire that results in a refocusing of the Christian and a refocusing of the church. Peter's using an analogy here, a metaphor that would take the early Christians back to the Old Testament, to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? His judgment. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. You see, the point is, there's a lot going on there. But the point of reading this is placing you back into the understanding of these early Christians. They would hear this and think the Lord is like a refiner's fire. He comes to purify his people so they can bring him acceptable offerings. And according to Paul in chapter 12, verse 1 of Romans, the spiritual offering the worship that God wants is you, your life given to him and for his glory. So if you asked a silversmith, how do you know when the, when the silver has been sent through the fire enough times? And he'll respond, well, when I can see my image clearly reflected in the silver. Family, this is what Jesus does with us. He uses the fire of suffering to purify us until he can clearly see his own image in us so others can see Jesus in us and through us. God is refining us to look more and more like Jesus, which also requires getting rid of a lot of stuff in us that's not Jesus. Showing all the other things that we trust in and hope in instead of Jesus. When you, when you test something by fire, you, 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 you discover what is pure and what is impure. What is the dross? In normal temperatures, you can't tell the difference, but you put them in the fire and it separates the two because the pure can withstand the fire, but the dross cannot. A fact of who we are is we have 
divided hearts, and you don't know, and you won't know until you go through the fire. We all have hearts with many allegiances, many things that we trust in and hope in, and whatever we trust in, we also glory in, and as a result, we become like. We might not like to admit this, but it's true. We like to think of ourselves as free or unbound from anything, not suppressed by anything, yet we're tightly bound to our idols, and they have a death grip on our souls and on our lives. And apart from fiery trials, we have no idea what we're trusting in, nor how inadequate those things truly are. Trials have a way of dividing our allegiances to show us the differences where we trust in God and where we trust in other things. And it's a fact of life that we can't know the difference without suffering informing us of this truth. Many of us say, I trust in God, but we also trust in other things. And you have no idea how much you trust in other things until they're threatened, removed, or destroyed. When you shake your fist and say, I believe in God, but what good is it to believe in God because I don't have this thing over here anymore, then you're going through the fire. A trial is whenever there's a separation made between your trust in God and your allegiance to something else. Without the fire, your allegiances are able to live together. They can coexist. For instance, we have our career, and we, we think we believe and we trust in God until we realize that obeying God may cost us our career. Or we want a relationship, and we finally found someone that we think we could marry, but they don't love Jesus, and they don't follow Jesus. School is very important, and you want to do your best, but then you realize that one day that standing up for what you believe, it actually might cost you a grade. Or consider what happens when you lose something that matters a lot to who you are. Career. You lose your job. And now you find it hard to trust God for identity and significance and provision. Or relationships. You've, you've, you found the one that you thought was going to be your spouse. Or perhaps was your spouse and they left you. You simply can't say, I put God first. And know that you really mean it until you've been through the fire. Because you don't really know if you put God first until the fire comes to reveal it. So again, why rejoice in suffering? We rejoice in the trial of suffering because God is at work separating the dross and purifying us for his glory. And this is what we want, right? For Christians, this is what we want. We want God to be glorified, right? I mean, that, that is supposed to be the purpose, the purpose of our lives. That's what it means to be Christian, is that you live for the glory and fame and the exalting of someone other than yourself, namely God. Peter is connecting here the call to rejoice in suffering with the joy that we're going to have in Christ's future glory being revealed. If we love God, if we cherish Christ, then we want him to be glorified, which means we want him to be rightly seen and known for how truly amazing he really is. And those who know him, those who love him, those who rejoice with an inexpressible joy, according to 1 Peter 1.8, we do this because we are becoming more and more like him. We make much of him as he is purifying us to make the most room for who he is and who we are. 
You see, we rejoice in suffering because we know that he's bringing about an even greater glory through our suffering as we become more and more refined by it. Christians, we love Jesus Christ being glorified. This is what we are to love. And so we should embrace suffering. Excuse me, suffering because he gets more glory through our lives as we go through the suffering. And here's the beauty the more we become like Jesus, the more others get to see Jesus in us. And we also come to see how much more trustworthy he is than everything else that we trust in because he doesn't burn away like the other impurities. Speaking of this judgment or burning away, look in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls, their life to a faithful creator while doing good to a faithful creator, to the reliable God, to the steadfast one, to the trustworthy creator, to the dependable father. Again, judgment here is not punishment or punishment to death, but rather purifying and cleansing. Scarcely saved doesn't mean that they make it by the skin of their teeth. It just means it's going to be difficult. Scarcely means with great difficulty. means that the righteous are saved in the midst of their suffering. Their salvation is not simple and easy, but in fact, it's strengthened and developed and completed through suffering in this life. And to obey the gospel of God is to set one's mind and heart on the truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's thinking and processing on who Jesus was, is, and will be, what he's done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do. And what many Christians and authors and writers speak of today by by gospel-centeredness is what Peter is getting at here with obeying the gospel of God. We're spurred on to worship the holy, living God, not by moralistic, guilt-ridden motivations, but in grateful response to the good news that was given to us and that is sanctifying and purifying us. And unfortunately, as he points out here, those who do not have this gospel identity, they're going to face God's judgment without the grace of Christ. It's a destiny that believers avoid since their judgment was carried out on Christ instead of themselves. And this destiny is worked out practically today, as Peter says, by doing God's will and entrusting our souls to our faithful creator. It's a fact that judgment is coming for us all. Every soul will stand face to face with God in our death or if he returns before then. This is why we can't get over Jesus. You see, for those who are in Christ, there's more, no more judgment to be feared. Jesus received it all for us. However, for those who do not believe Christ, this is not true for you. But here's the invitation. You can get in on this too. As Pastor Jacob started the gathering today, all those who are weary. That's the qualifier. Do you know that you're tired? (laughs) Or do you feel pretty strong? You gotta be tired. You gotta be exhausted. You gotta have enough. You just gotta be finished with it and collapse towards Jesus. Believe him. 
and you'll be saved. Peter summarizes in verse 19, essentially his whole letter. Believers are to suffer in accord with the will of God, for God rules over everything that happens, even the Christian's suffering. As the sovereign creator, God is also loving and God is also faithful, you see. Therefore, Christians should entrust their lives entirely to him, just as Christ entrusted himself to God through his suffering. And such trust manifests itself in doing what is good regardless of the outcome. So so who are you entrusting yourself to? And what is the person or thing that you're trusting yourself to if not Jesus? And can it truly save you? How do you know if the things that you're trusting in can help you make it through the fire? It's only through the fire that you learn this. The present fires of sufferings and trials, they're they're testing the strength of what we actually believe in. And only God, only in Christ can we stand and walk through the fiery trials. Only Jesus can sustain us and save us through the fire and the trials that we face today in the future judgment awaiting us. We know this because he went through the fiery trial of the cross for us and sin and death did not have victory over him. He overcame. So who do you go to? Who are you hoping to cling to in the midst of the fiery trial? If you can't take that heat, it's because you've put your trust in gods that cannot take the heat and the intensity of the fire of suffering. Whenever your life comes to a point where it feels meaningless or hopeless, most likely it's because you've placed your hope in something that is a functional savior, but not a true savior. You've put your trust in things other than God and they have failed you. Career, relationship, savings account, health, productivity, fame, physical appearance, When these things are taken, you feel like life has nothing else to offer. These are your functional gods. They're the idols of your hearts, and they simply cannot withstand the fire. But if you put your hope and trust in God, regardless of what might happen to you, you will never have to say that life is meaningless or that you are hopeless no matter what you might face or go through. It's in the midst of this struggle. It's in the midst of the difficulty of pressing in to believe Jesus, even through the pain that God is purifying us and proving himself to be trustworthy for us. If you haven't yet suffered much, don't be surprised when you do. Ready yourself for it. If you are presently suffering, rejoice in what it can produce and receive what God is doing to you and through you in it. And if you're in suffering... It is being revealed that you've got dross and you've been trusting in something other than God. It is he or she or it. It's proven to yourself to be insufficient. Then entrust your soul to God today and tell him this. All those who do not obey the gospel, which means that they do not believe in Jesus and they have not received his forgiveness for their sins on the cross, they will not be saved through this fire. Not only will the trials of life break you down, but you're not going to be able to stand at the judgment when you appear before God, the righteous judge. So I invite you to come to him today to purify yourselves from sin and hear this. The gospel of God is 
Jesus suffered in your place for your sin to save you from the wrath of God against your sin and to purify you from all ungodliness. Trust him today. Come to him today. The suffering that we face is meant to lead us to Jesus, the one who suffered in our place and for our sin and who overcame so that we too might overcome. Come to him. The hope of the Christian is that one day God will not only take away our suffering, but he will heal every wound and he will restore everything good forever. Christian, suffering will not be the last note of your life, even if you suffer the rest of your life. If you joyfully humble yourself in God's hands and plan, he will exalt you soon enough. And on that day, after you've suffered a little while, 1 Peter 5.10, on that day, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is our hope. We suffer for a moment. Even if for a life, it's for a moment compared with eternity. And one day we'll be restored from our brokenness. We'll be confirmed against all our uncertainties. We'll be strengthened through all our weaknesses. And we we will be established in his glory by God our Father. In the place of our broken and painful existence on earth will be the never-ending experience of the greatest joy that you've ever tasted. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, to 18, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, (laughs) that's called a life of suffering if you want it to be called a life of suffering. It's still light and momentary affliction. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. You don't just look at the fire. You understand its purpose, its nature, how it's refining and chiseling you into becoming more and more like Jesus. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Pastor Charles Spurgeon says this. Listen carefully here, please. When the black clouds gather most, the light is the more brightly revealed to us. When the night lowers and the tempest is coming on, the heavenly captain is always closest to his crew. It is a blessed thing that when we are most cast down, then it is that we are most lifted up by the consolations of the Spirit. One reason is because trials make more room for consolation. Great hearts can only be made by great troubles. The spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes more room for consolation. God comes into our heart. He finds it full. He begins to break our comforts and to make it empty. Then there is more room for grace. The humbler, see how he links humility as well. The humbler a man lies, the more comfort he will always have because he will be more fitted to receive it. Another reason why we are often most happy in our troubles is this. Then we have the closest dealings with God. When the barn is full, man can live without God. When the purse is bursting with gold, we try to do without so much prayer. 
but once take our gourds away and we want our God. Once cleanse the idols out of the house, then we are compelled to honor Jehovah. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. There is no cry so good as that which comes from the bottom of the mountains. No prayer half so hearty as that which comes up from the depths of the soul through deep trials and afflictions. Hence, they bring us to God. And we are happier, for nearness to God is happiness. Come, troubled believer, fret not over your heavy troubles, for they are the heralds of weighty mercies. The painful, purifying fire is one of the kindest things that God our Father could allow us to experience. It is kind because God uses it to remove from us counterfeit joys, counterfeit hopes that cannot satisfy. And in fact, when we worship them, they make us miserable, meaningless, and hopeless. It's kind because God uses it to draw us closer to himself, to increase our dependency upon him, to deepen our relationship with him, and he knows this is the happy, happiest place that we could ever be. Father, comfort your people. Lord, bring clarity to the fire that they're walking through bring purpose. Lord, where, where we don't know and, and don't understand, would you bring great trust and faith knowing that you are good, knowing that you are aware, knowing that you do care for us. Lord, as we all experience great suffering this coming week and this past week in different ways, perhaps years, not just weeks of suffering, Lord, would you grant a gospel perspective for our suffering so that when the Axis Church suffers, that we bring great glory and fame and recognition to your mighty name. Lord, help us make you look good through suffering, desirable, as I must have what you have because you're going through this in a way that I cannot go through this. Would this be what people see and say of the people of this church family as we suffer who knows what in the coming decades? Lord, help us trust you. Create that in us. Lord, Spirit, do your work in us to enable us to have this perspective. Thank you, Jesus, for being such a beautiful example, a wonderful example of what it was to trust in the midst of suffering. Lord, move in our hearts and change us in this way. In Christ's name, amen.